Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We pray thee that thou, in thy great faithfulness, will bless the truth to each heart. And in this hour use it in the hearts and minds of those who listen. If there should be any who have not been born again, still stubborn against thee, wilt thou break down their hardness and bring them to know the Lord Jesus as Savior and bless all who have named thy name. We ask it all in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are studying together in the book of Revelation and come today to the sixth chapter, the first two verses. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living ones saying as with a voice of thunder, Come. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on him having a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. At some time in every commentary on the book of Revelation, it is necessary to go back to the book of Daniel and to the great prophetic utterance of our Lord in his last discourse on the Mount of Olives a few days before his death. The events which we are about to study in the breaking of the seals are pictures which need to be framed, and the framework is to be found in the passages we have indicated. Daniel had a vision which concerned certain periods of time. Just as John wept, when he thought that there was no one worthy to open the scroll. So Daniel received his prophetic knowledge after definitely setting his face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. The humiliation of the soul of the prophet was preparation for divine revelation. And no one can lay hold of prophetic truth who is not willing to pass by the same low road. His final prayer was for the sanctuary at Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies, symbol of the presence of God on earth among his people at that time. Now therefore we read in Daniel 9:17, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplication, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate, for the Lord's sake. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do, defer not. Now it was in the midst of this plea that Gabriel was sent forth from heaven to talk with Daniel and to inform him. I am now come forth, he said, to give thee skill and understanding. Daniel was then informed that seventy periods of time were determined upon Israel and upon Jerusalem. In the English translation, the phrase has been rendered 70 weeks. The Hebrew word which is translated week is one which means a seven. The New Revised Standard Version rightly translates it week of years. Now just as a period of 10 years is called a decade, so we could well translate this word heptad. A week of years, a period of seven years. If we do this, the meaning of the passage becomes clear. Seventy weeks of years are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Within this period of 490 years, certain things were to be accomplished. This time was determined, quote, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity 
and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, it is readily seen that some of these points have been fulfilled, and that others have not, although far more than 490 years have passed. When the Messiah came forth to die, he did make re reconciliation for iniquity, but everlasting righteousness was certainly not brought in at that time. Only two explanations are possible. All that was prophesied did not take place in 490 years. Therefore, the prophecy is false, or the years are not consecutive, and a gap is to be sought somewhere. Now, the latter interpretation is immediately seen to be the correct one, for Gabriel was very specific. The period of 70 heptads, 70 weeks of years, was to be divided into three sections, 49 years plus 434 years plus seven years. Let us read more closely. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks of years and sixty-two weeks of years. The beginning of the time measure was the royal decree, promulgated by Artaxerxes in the twentieth year of his reign, and recorded in the second chapter of Nehemiah. After seven weeks of years, the city had been restored in the midst of great trouble. From this time, the sixty-two weeks of years run. Daniel's narrative continues. And after sixty-two weeks of years shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Here, of course, is a very definite date, the crucifixion of Christ as a substitute for the sins of Israel. We do not need to go into the details of the chronology, for Sir Robert Anderson, former head of the Criminal Investigation Department of Great Britain, better known as Scotland Yard, and well-known student of the Old Testament, has done this admirably in his book, The Coming Prince. Following this tragedy, there was to be a judgment upon Jerusalem, following this tragedy of the cutting off of the Messiah. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Now we know historically that it was the Roman people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary under Titus. This identifies the prince that shall come as being one who shall become the head of the Roman Empire. The argument has been set forth many times and by many writers. It fits all the circumstances perfectly and accords with the definite statement of Christ, the prophecies of Paul, and the visions of John in the book of Revelation. Sixty-nine weeks of years have thus been accounted for. One remains, seven years, which we declare to be future, to begin after a great lapse of time between the death of Christ and the events which shall set this 70th week in its course. We ourselves are living in this parenthesis between the 69th and the 70th and last period. When the disciples came to the Lord on the Mount of Olives during the last week before the crucifixion, they asked him certain prophetic questions. 
They wanted to know the sign of his coming and the end of the age. They knew nothing of the church age. It was at that time a mystery hid with God, as we read in Ephesians 3, 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. The age concerning which they inquired was the age of God's dealings with Israel, the age covered by Daniel's prophecy with which we are concerned. How did the Lord answer? He began to recount a series of events, false Christs, wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. And he announced that these were but the beginning of sorrows. One most significant prophecy then occurs by which we're able to tie all prophetic utterances together in their proper sequence. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. That's Matthew 24, 15. According to the Lord Jesus Christ, an event spoken of by Daniel is the key to the understanding of the events at the end of the age. It is when they shall see something which he calls the abomination of desolation, placed in the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary at Jerusalem. Let us go back to Daniel's prophecy to discover the meaning. He has spoken of this sinister figure, the prince that shall come, one whose people would destroy Jerusalem. We read in Daniel 9:27, and he shall confirm the covenant, that is, make a treaty, with the many, the majority of the Jews, for one week of years. And in the midst of that week of years, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now this prince that shall come is the Antichrist. Our Lord said, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. So the picture now becomes clear. The Antichrist will make a treaty with the majority of the Jews for seven years, undoubtedly allowing them control of the Holy Land with Jerusalem and the place of the sanctuary they shall immediately begin the Levitical sacrifices. When the period has run half its course, that is, after three and a half years, the Antichrist will order the sacrifices to cease, and then will perform some act which our Lord calls the abomination of desolation. A concordance will quickly reveal to us that idolatry is frequently called an abomination unto the Lord. But we have a more definite description in the second epistle of the Thessalonians, of what the Antichrist will do. Paul had taught personally, we find in Second Thessalonians 2, that Christ was to come at any moment to take the believers out of the world, following which rapture there would be a time of great tribulation upon the earth. When the first persecutions came, there were some who thought that Paul's prophecy was being fulfilled then and that, therefore, somehow they had been left behind in the rapture. Satan desired to foster this false doctrine in order to increase spiritual confusion. The New Testament had not been written, and spiritual truth was communicated in supernatural ways and was beginning to be communicated by the inspired epistles of Paul. When Thessalonian believers came to him with his problem, he wrote, 
Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, that is, satanic spirit, nor by word, that is, someone speaking a false word in the meeting, nor by letter as from us, that is, someone had undoubtedly stooped to counterfeit Paul's epistle, as that the day of the Lord is now present. No false doctrine should be believed. The scripture definitely pointed out that God's great judgment could not take place until certain things occurred. So he goes on to explain, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come the apostasy first, and the lawless one be revealed, the son of perdition. Here is the announcement that the Antichrist must come, and there follows a definite description of the act of which Daniel hints, and which the Lord announced to be the fixed point from which prophetic events were to be understood. Now what does this Antichrist do when he comes? We read, He opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and then again by Jesus Christ. Paul reminds them that this was precisely what he had preached about when he had visited the, the church in Thessalonica. He then went on to complete the teaching. The Antichrist may not be manifested until another great event takes place. And so he said in the next verse, And now ye know what restrains him, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already working. Only he, the Holy Spirit, who now hindereth, will hinder until he be taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit came down into the world at Pentecost in a special sense in which he had never been in the world to dwell in the church, the body of believers, which is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. When all believers are removed to heaven according to the promise made to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10, and which we have seen prophetically accomplished in the vision of the elders around the throne of God, the Holy Spirit goes out from the world in the sense that he came into it at Pentecost. When, therefore, he is taken out of the way, then shall the lawless one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Putting all of these prophecies together, we see that there is a seven-year period marked by a treaty between the Antichrist and Israel the central point of which shall be the betrayal of Israel by the Antichrist and the setting up of his statue in the Holy of Holies as though he were God. The Lord Jesus Christ divides the events in the 24th chapter of Matthew by this point. It should be noted that we have no way whatsoever of tying this event into the date by which we count time. There is no connection between events of the 20th century and these prophetic outlines. In the future, however, believers in the last seven-year period will be able to mark their calendar day by day and know the course of events by means of the prophecies which are spread before us. 
Today, this explanation must be understood if we are to arrive at a true understanding of the book of Revelation. For we are declaring that from the opening of the first seal, the first earthly event in this seven-year period takes place. And the remainder of the book of Revelation up to the 19th chapter is the detailed history of earth events after the church has been removed to heaven and while Satan is making his last bold bid for earth control. Let us turn again to the 24th chapter of Matthew and note certain conclusions which must be drawn from the teaching of our Lord. A series of events is described up to the 14th verse. The abomination of desolation is announced in the 15th verse. Following this, a second series of events is described, including the phrase, For then shall be great tribulation, which term has frequently been extended to cover the whole of the seven-year period. Now, for the sake of harmony with all biblical utterances, we shall not use the term great tribulation of the whole seven-year period, but only of the last half of the period, and shall call the whole time by the phrase the 70th week, the 70th heptad, or more briefly, the, the seven years. As we proceed with our study, we shall take note that there is absolute parallelism between the events as described by Christ in his prophecy of this period and the detailed prophecies of the apocalypse itself. When the Lord Jesus began to answer the questions of the disciples, he said, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. The first earth event, then, of the seven years is a special manifestation of the power of Satan, counterfeiting the return of Christ. With this announcement, we're ready to see the first seal removed by the Lord. And I saw, when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come, and I saw, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on him having a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth, conquering and to conquer. Now it's strange that more commentators have not detected the counterfeit, but just as many people are deceived by counterfeit coins, for if they were not, no one would go to the trouble of making them. So many have been deceived by this counterfeit Christ who rides forth as soon as he who hindereth is taken out of the way. Many have looked upon this rider of the white horse as being Christ. We have a hymn built upon this verse. Conquering now and still to conquer rideth the king in his might, leading the host of the faithful into the midst of the fight. See them with courage advancing clad in their brilliant array, shouting the name of their leader, hear them exultingly say, not to the strong is the battle, not to the swift is the race, yet to the true and the faithful, victory is promised through grace. Now, the sentiments expressed in this hymn may be true, but they are certainly not taught from this passage of Scripture. If we wish to see Christ coming forth as a conqueror, we must turn to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, where we read, And I saw heaven open, and behold, the white horse, and he that sat upon him was called the faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. 
and his name is called the Word of God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now we must not forget that the Antichrist is a counterfeit Christ. He has no power to create. He is going to imitate. He is going to seek to fulfill the world's idea of what the Messiah should be. Since the world has rejected God's word as to what the Messiah must be. We have only to look at the details of the prophecy to see how far removed this is from the Lord Jesus Christ of the scriptures. The counterfeit is revealed by a detailed comparison of the two writers. The one whose name is the word of God has on his head many crowns. The symbol is of all royalty and majesty. The Greek word is diadema, diadem. The horseman of the first seal wears no diadem. The false crown is the Stephanos. Its diamonds are paste. Now, the weapon of this rider is the bow. The Lord of Glory is quite differently armed. He carries a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. Thus is the faithful and true armed. But this Don Quixote moves forth with a weapon that strikes terror only to the uninitiated. For those who are marked out as God's own carry the shield of faith, with which they shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. No, this is not the Christ, though he may be dressed up to look like him. On the walls of the great museums are masterpieces of painting. Before these, on easels, are the copies of students. It takes no very practiced eye to distinguish between genius and what amounts to caricature. Commentators who have attempted to interpret this rider as being the Lord Jesus have been hard put to it to explain the riders which follow, scourge upon scourge, especially when they have tried to fit these prophecies into some event of church history. The best they have been able to imagine is that the wrath of God was moving in the little chastisements that have come upon the earth through the years. But how could these, which are at the most rehearsals, be called a tribulation greater than any that ever was or that ever should be? And the commentators fight among themselves and chide each other for their choice of events to fulfill these symbols. It has been rightly said that nothing but hopeless confusion can result from the attempt to show that a future event has already been fulfilled. It is no wonder the book has remained sealed to many, simply because they will not admit that all this is future. The facts of history, together with the plain language of Revelation, have been strained to the last limit to produce an agreement, and the many tongues of interpretation testify to the hopelessness of the effort. Nothing has ever transpired in history to fill the measure demanded by the majestic language of this part of Revelation. The attempt to reconcile past history with what we find here is to make words meaningless and to lead the seeker after truth into the oriental maze of human imagination. Let us remember that God has purposes that are yet to be fulfilled and we shall escape from the bewildering confusion of the historical interpreters and at the same time rescue the book from the dishonor put upon it. O Lord our God bless, we pray thee, and use to thine honor and glory the truth 
that is now set forth, and use it, our God, that many shall come to the knowledge of thy word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. Bless each word to each listening heart in this hour. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are studying for the present in the book of Revelation and come to the today to the exposition in the sixth chapter of the second and third of the four horses of the apocalypse. First of all, we take Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and there came forth another, a red horse, and it was given to the one that sat on him to take the peace from the earth, in order that they might kill each other, and there was given unto him a great sword. Now the world, in its moment of greatest need, will turn to a man who goes forth with a plan for peace. Our Lord stated when he was here on earth, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. Now this is the rider on the white horse. His true character is not long hidden. When he takes possession of the power over the nations, he is swiftly followed by the judgment of God. After the white horse, there comes forth the red, the black, and the, the livid. No sooner do these appear than war is unloosed, famine breaks forth, and death stalks the earth. It is not without reason that the Holy Spirit calls the Antichrist the beast. If we examine the various passages that speak of him, we see that he comes out of the abyss in Revelation 17:8. His character is that of a beast, we read in chapter 13. His power, his throne, and his authority are from Satan, we read in 13:2. And finally, God deals with him as a beast in chapter 19. Now it is from him that we see from the beginning the nature and the character of this rider of the white horse. For at first, the world will take him to be Christ, the Messiah. He is, however, the counterfeit Christ, the anti-Messiah. The order of events follows closely that which was announced by our Lord in answer to the disciples' questions on the Mount of Olives. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. This is the white horse. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. This is the red horse of war. There are some who apply this passage to our day, thinking that the wars which trouble this age are those spoken of in prophecy. Nothing could be further from the truth. The wars of our day are but rehearsals. They are indications to those who have the wit to see that all is not right in the world. But the wars which Christ prophesied take place after the believers are removed from the earth, after the man of sin has been revealed. These campaigns are described in the book of Daniel. There is a well-known type of biblical narrative in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit leads a prophet to consider some event that is transpiring before the gaze of the world at that moment. The inspired writer presents some of the details of what is to him contemporaneous history. And then suddenly, without so much as a break in the paragraph, the Holy Spirit carries the writer forward more than 2,000 years to the time of the end and speaks of prophetic events which have some similarity with those transpiring before the eye of the prophet. We might liken this type of prophecy to the stereopticon slide. Take it in your hands and examine it. And dimly, you see certain lines and patches of light and shade. 
Place it on the projector with the proper light shining through it, and on the screen in proper focus you see the great image clear and distinct. So it is with the prophecies in the word of God. For Isaiah brings a message of comfort to Jerusalem because of some armistice that had ended a local warfare, and in the next verse carries us on to John the Baptist comforting the nation because the final peace has been proclaimed. Ezekiel rebukes the king of Tyre because of pride that lifted him up to the place where he accepted worship from his subjects, and is carried on into the spiritual realm to describe the fall of Lucifer, who through pride turned the worship of creation away from God toward himself. The word of God enables us to trace some of the movements of Antichrist after his first rise to power. We see from the verses that are under discussion in the Revelation that the rider of the second horse is permitted to take peace from the earth. Christ tells us that following the manifestation of false Christ come war and rumors of war. It is Daniel who describes the campaign. The details of the beginning are not given to us. They do not concern the land of Israel. But suddenly we see the two kings pushing against the Antichrist in Daniel 11.40. His army is first seen marching forward in the neighborhood of Asia Minor and Syria. He shall enter into the country and shall overflow and pass over, we read. Now perhaps in the light of other scriptures, this might be taken to describe the campaign that united the former Roman Empire. At any rate, we next see him enter Palestine. As we read, he shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. Now knowing our geography, it's easy to follow the narrative when he comes from Syria into Palestine. Will he turn to scale the terrible ramparts that protect Transjordania? Daniel shows us that the situation in Egypt is evidently urgent. He does not have time for a thrust against the Arab people. These shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. He reaches Egypt and conquers it. Some of his forces break over Ethiopia. But it is a wave that has dashed itself too high upon the shore and must break and recede. We read, Tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth out of Africa with great fury to destroy and utterly annihilate many. His headquarters were established in Palestine between the seas in the glorious holy mountains. And now the stage is set for later events of the seven-year period. The conquest of Palestine and the rehabilitation of the Roman Empire are by no means the climax of the defects and disasters of the time of the end. In fact, our Lord said, and what a word of comfort this will be to those who have seen the true nature of the Antichrist and whose hearts have turned in repentance toward the true Christ. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. We think that we are living in a day of war and rumors of war, but all that we have seen is nothing compared with what shall be when the second horseman of the apocalypse rides forth. Today we see just enough to know the great outline of what will come to pass. What will it not take of marching armies and Satan's flying air squadrons to bring the nations into the alliance that face each other at Armageddon? Russia leading her forces and those of the Germany she has absorbed. Persia turned from other influences and swinging into line with the great northern confederacy. The Arab peoples uniting to join with them. Republics turning to kingdoms. Western Europe in dismay at the power of the coalition that rises in the north and the east melt together under the rule of the Antichrist. Now the historian, trained in research, faces a problem of history with delight. 
But here lying before us in the prophetic word, and even visible on the not-too-distant horizon of world events, is the greatest cataclysm of all time. The stream of history has flowed through the centuries with occasional rapids, but now it is to be churned white in a giant cascade and boiled in the vortex of its greatest whirlpool. For God, in his own inscrutable purpose, takes his restraining hand from the world and permits Satan to have his way. Yet he, our God, in his omniscience, knows how Satan's force will move, and he's written down the outline in his words. So clear is this picture that it's almost a pity to turn aside to answer false interpretations. To us it is almost incredible that serious interpreters of the Bible record should go so far from the truth. Yet we have before us a commentary accepted by many, which makes of the first horseman the Lord Jesus, and the red horse to be that strife or variant that comes from the preaching of the gospel. Quoting as a parallel Christ's words, Think not that I have come to send peace to the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. It seems almost childish to speak of persecutions and wars that have followed the spread of Christianity as the fulfillment of this prophecy. Such interpretation comes from a low view of God's wrath against sin. There is no realization of the meaning of great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time known or ever shall be. If it be said that the words we are discussing cannot apply to the last days, for there will be then no peace to be taken away from the earth, we must realize that it is as a man of peace that the false Christ will be able to get his hold on a tired world. Mankind, refusing the substance that is in Christ, takes the peace, so-called, that the Antichrist offers, but finds that the white horse is followed by the red scourge of war. The whole swing of the narrative teaches us the amazing compactness of events. Like raining blows upon an anvil, crisis follows crisis, all moving in an accelerating tempo. It is as though one smith strikes the red iron, and then as though there were danger of its losing its heat too quickly and ceasing to be malleable. Other smiths come to add their blows in the practiced rhythm of judgment. But let us go on to the fifth and to the eighth verses, those which describe the third horse. We read, And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. And I saw, and behold, a black horse, and the one that sat on him had a balance in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A chainix of wheat for a denarius, and three chainix of barley for a denarius. It's as though we said, A bushel of wheat for a day's pay, and three bushels of barley for a day's pay. And hurt thou not the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I saw, and behold, a livid horse. And the one sitting on him is named Death, and Hades followed with him. And authority was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with death and by the wild beasts of the earth. The third horse is black. In the sequence of events given by Christ, it is famine which follows the war and rumors of war. And here we have a great scarcity indicated. The climax where men die of hunger comes with the fourth horseman. The black horse, however, does bring great scarcity. He carries the balance, indicating that food must be weighed carefully. Ezekiel prophesies that the children of Israel, in the midst of their desperation, shall know this scarcity. For we read in Ezekiel 4.10, 
and thy meat which thou shalt eat shall be by weight, twenty shekels a day. From time to time shalt thou eat it. Thou shalt drink also water by measure. Behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight and with care. Now this is part fulfillment of the judgment announced in Leviticus. 26, 26. When I have broken the staff of your bread in one oven, and they shall deliver your bread again by weight, and ye shall eat and not be satisfied. It will be seen as we continue our study of the Revelation that following the greatest strokes of suffering, there are breathing spells as though to test humanity. Will they turn to God, or will he be forced to bring forth greater and heavier artillery of punishment? From the midst of the four living creatures comes a voice, commanding the rider of the black horse. The voice speaks of the measurement of wheat and barley and gives command to protect the oil and the wine. The measure spoken of here is the Greek measure of capacity, a very ancient usage, the chenix. As early as the time of Homer, it was indicated as the amount of wage given to a workman for a full day's work. Herodotus also gives this as the measure of wheat consumed by each soldier in the army of Xerxes. The coin was the denarius, the amount of wages given to a day laborer in Matthew 20. If the poor barley grain were consumed, it was found to be three times cheaper than the wheat. The prices are certainly high. A man would be giving all of his income for the bare necessities of life. But he could scrape through. Some have seen in this passage nothing but famine, but rather, we believe, must the contrast with the luxurious be seen. Hurt thou not the oil and the wine, the voice commands. The poor are getting poorer, but the rich are still able to retain their luxuries. Just after World War I, I spent a few days in Vienna at the time when misery was very great. The British commissioner had just reported in the London Times that it was not uncommon to see the streets of the capital blocked by funerals of which three out of four were children. There was a shortage of coal. The police had ordered everyone off the streets by nine o'clock. The city was filled with wealthy refugees from Russia and other countries. Walking along the ring one afternoon as the crowds were coming out of the opera, which began early to conform with the curfew regulations, I saw men with bare feet in the snow, their skeletons covered with rags, their ribs seen through the holes in the cloths with which they attempted to cover their bodies. From time to time there was blood on the snow from their feet. Out of the opera came men escorting women with fortunes in jewels upon them. Never have I seen more wonderful displays in any of the capitals of the earth. The beggars blocked the way to the fine limousines that came for the rich. I saw the men striking the beggars with their canes to clear the way for the women. Poor girls, not clad in the gaudy finery of prostitutes, but with poor clothing and in wooden shoes, clattered about, clutching at the passerby, and offering to sell themselves for a coin which at that moment could be purchased for one five hundredth part of a dollar, and which would do little more than buy half a loaf of bread. Mark well, there was no famine in Vienna. There was scarcity in the midst of plenty, but there was no hurt to the luxuries. And that is the picture that is presented here. Now, one of the great criticisms of the present time is that there is scarcity in the midst of plenty. And that is true, of course, on the worldwide scale. Though scarcity is in the rest of the world, the plenty is in our country. And this is the situation which will be accentuated a thousandfold when the Antichrist begins his reign. 
It is a social maladjustment. Yet, in spite of this fact, there is no repentance. Nations do not turn to God, but they go on their way without him. Bengal has said in his commentary, the balances of this rider serve as a sign that all the fruits of the ground and consequently all heaven with its progressive influences, all the seasons of the year and the course of events with their manifold changes and vicissitudes are subject to Christ. All the happenings of earth, the movements of crops, the order of events are in answer to his word, yet men will not believe. There is, of course, a spiritual interpretation of these symbols. There are other verses in the Bible where bread and oil and wine are mentioned together. We read in Psalm 104, he causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth and wine that maketh glad the heart of man and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. Can it be that in the midst of famine for the bread of God, where it will be impossible for the Bible to be circulated, where every precious copy will be protected, as in the days of great persecution, that the people of God will nevertheless have the wine of gladness and the anointing of the Spirit of God? Oh, the Holy Spirit indeed will have left the earth when the Lord withdraws the church at the rapture but he will have left only as the one who indwells the heart of man. He shall yet be here as he was in Old Testament times, pouring himself forth upon those who believe and making glad their hearts in the midst of spiritual lack. Now at the opening of the fourth field, the last horse is seen. The color of this horse in the revised version is given as pale. The Greek word is very interesting. It is chloros from which the name of chlorine gas is taken. This gas is livid, greenish, the color of a corpse. Same word is found elsewhere in the New Testament and is translated green in Mark 6 and in Revelation 8 and 9. The rider of this horse is named. He is none other than death. Hades follows with him as though to gather up the victims, which are mowed down by the sickle of death. We remember back in the second chapter of Hebrews that the devil is the one who had the power of death. And here we see him exercising it as we saw him exercising it in the family of Job. The moment that he had permission of God. And what he now does in this chapter is definitely by the command of Christ. John saw in the event of the first chapter the one who said, Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of Hades and of death. Now, as we behold the four horsemen ride forth, we must not forget that they come at the express command of the one who opens the seals. What comfort for us today, and what comfort for the persecuted ones of the future, to know that no movement of Satan is apart from the knowledge of the will of God. Now, there are two possible explanations of what follows. We can look upon these symbols as describing something literal and something spiritual. I'm inclined to think that both explanations are true. Christ included it in his list of events. False Christs, wars, and rumors of wars were to be followed by famines and pestilence and earthquakes in divers places. Here we see the rider of the greenish horse going forth with power over the fourth part of the earth, killed with sword and with hunger and death, and by the beasts of the earth. It's very simple to give the material explanation. Modern methods of war in this age of atom bombs and hydrogen bombs have made it possible.
in one-fourth of the Earth's population if taken in the large sense, or one-fourth of the population of the Holy Land if taken in the small sense, to be destroyed in a very brief time. Now today, the great armies have means to make ruthless war against the civil population of a possible enemy. This includes war by gas, war by bombs from the air, and worst of all, bacteriological warfare by test tubes filled with germs to be dropped into the water supply of the enemy. A very few months would suffice to do away with one-fourth part of the Earth's population. Spiritually, however, we must see that following the rise of Antichrist, there comes war, together with social unrest and great scarcity. If the symbols describing the character and actions of the fourth rider are spiritual, our task again is not difficult. The devil who is the power of death is also called a liar and the father of it. His desire to kill is also seen in this same verse. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Here he goes forth to kill with his sword. Now the sword of the spirit is the word of God. The weapon of Satan, not the same Greek word, is of course counterfeit. It would represent the spiritual lie as opposed to the truth of God. God's truth makes alive. Satan's lie kills. There particularly is a reference to this in Paul's great prophecy concerning the Antichrist. In Second Thessalonians 2, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie. In the Greek it is that they should believe the lie, as though some specific lie were in view. As we proceed, we shall see the demons are sent to the earth to propagate false doctrine. Here we see the beginning of something that is as yet in the shadow, but which certainly will take definite form after the man of sin is revealed. There have been lies before, but this is the climax, as though Satan had held back the ace of Trump to play in the last desperate moment of his game. The spiritual hunger is readily understood, where there is no feeding on the word of God. This famine is always sore. We must not forget the definite prophecy that in the last days there shall be a famine of the word of God, Amos 8:11. Spiritual death follows spiritual hunger. The lie spreads like a pestilence, carrying its awful toll of victims to Hades which follows, holding them until they shall be cast into the lake of fire. And this propagation of the lie shall be all done officially. Governments shall connive to support Satan's thrust. Evangelically minded nations, notably Germany, Scandinavia, Holland, and Great Britain, all have done much to spread the truth. Their benevolent attitude was once a great factor in the preaching of the gospel. But all of the governments, the wild beasts of the earth, will follow the lead of the rider of the death-like horse, and the lies shall spread with its famine and death. Oh, well may the heart that is out of Christ tremble at the thought of so much judgment. Our Lord Jesus himself says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. But well may the heart of every believer rest in our Lord, he said, see that ye be not troubled. The reason for such a statement is that he knows the end from the beginning and that we are in him. And our God and Father, we pray thee to bless the truth to each heart and build us in the knowledge of thy coming 
and of the great prophetic truths that thou hast set forth. Hear us, we pray thee, for we ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.